Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome back to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. In 2020, amidst the chaos and tragedy of a dark year, the Estonian composer Arvo Part turned 85. Dash Arts had planned a live event in London to mark his birthday with the Estonian Embassy, which along with most other plans for 2020 was shelved. But we were determined to do something and together created Dash's first digital event, a combo of high-quality recorded concert and the now ubiquitous Zoom. Amazingly, we managed to reach live digital audiences from 23 countries around the world. We brought together Michael Part, Arvo Part's son and the director of the Arvo Part Centre in Tallinn, and pianist Sofia Rahman and violinist Andres Kajuste. We chatted about Arvo Part's life and music, particularly looking at Tintinabili, the compositional style which Arvo developed and has had a profound musical impact on the world. Tintinabili, or the ringing of bells, is minimalist and deeply mathematical. It's the bringing together of two lines of music, the melody and an accompanying voice in a slow and meditative tempo. You'll hear it in almost all the music we played as part of the evening. The event itself was fantastic, and we wanted to share it with you as part of the Dash Arts podcasts. So here's a slightly edited version of the conversation. Due to licensing restrictions, we can't play the whole concert, so I've simply included some excerpts. But happily, we have been able to sneak in some extended and as yet unheard conversation with my guests from the evening as part of this podcast. Here's Michael Part introducing the centre. Welcome to Tallinn, to Estonia, to Laurasma. We are here at the Autopart Center and we are very happy to be part of this uh, wonderful Dash Arts event. And um, the center has opened a couple of years ago and we are basically here to have a home for the legacy and, and the heritage of my father's work and to also make it possible for visitors to come and take part in, in the live music and the materials available to hear. And um, so tonight we'll, we'll be listening to some music and we'll be able to have a, a conversation and I'm really much looking forward to that. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, let's do that. Thank you so much, Michael. And um, actually, I, I, we're also um, privileged to have uh, Andres and uh, Sophia who are actually next, sitting next to you. It's like a, the kind of, I've got the three of you there and I'm in, over in London. Um, who are, live, you live very close to, to the other part centre, don't you, the two of you in, in Tallinn. Um, how does it feel to play his music from his, from his home? Uh, it, it's a little bit more complicated answer uh, that I, I need to give here, but um, I've played his music for 20 years now. Um, and so um, it's also, that's one, one thing. But the other thing is that I happen to also live very close to this centre in these woods, and um, so um, this is like a little bit like my own home hall, uh, which has um, opened up in the last two years. I've been uh, living or spending summers here for, for all my life. Uh, but um, it's, it's, of course, it's, it, this music flows in a way in my, in my veins because I've very much grown up with this music from an early age and, um, and it's uh, been basically the soundtrack of my life. And Sophia, you're, you're between London and between the UK and, and Estonia. That, I that am. Right? In fact, I've got a very early flight back to London tomorrow morning. <laughs> 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 so I could do this and then go back to some concerts at home. Um, oh, that's fantastic. You've got live, some live events happening. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. And it, as Andres told you, we live very, very close to the centre in 
absolutely magical countryside. So we're on a peninsula here. There's sea on both sides and there's pine forest in between, beautiful sandy beaches. And the centre is nestled among the trees, um, deliberately designed that way, I'm told, but I'm sure Michael will tell you more about that. So it's a very, very special place to play this music, which has a very individual atmosphere. And the hall is wonderful. I hope that comes across on Zoom for a, a better impression of <laughs> the acoustic is really wonderful for, for chamber music and for this size of work that we're, we're going to present to you later on. Thank you, Sophia. So Michael, take us back to uh, Alvaro's kind of very, his beginnings 85 years ago. Was he, did he, did he live close to, to Laulas one? Did he grow up there? Um, can you tell us a little bit about his training? How did it begin for him? Well, he, he studied in Tallinn after growing up in Rakvere. Uh, and he went to the conservatory, the music conservatory here in Tallinn. Um, and and follow, following that, there was um, um, a number of various occupations that he had. He worked for the sound engineer at the national broadcasters. He also worked at, at the at a, a local theatre making music. But um, eventually, with with uh, becoming a composer uh, during those those times in in the sixties, um, uh, serial music and collage technique was really something that was very broadly encouraged and 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 was really cutting edge at the time. And really through his use, it, it, it was very much popularized here in this area and also in the wider, wider area. So this is really kind of the entry point to, to him being a, a full-time composer. It was only later that he started to question um, the style of music, which led to the next stages in his, in his um, compositional life. Right. And did he tour around the Soviet Union? I mean, was he, had his music during that period extended beyond the kind of Estonian borders? Uh, yes, it, it did, and the, the, obviously within within um, certain frames or, or proportions, which which were possible at the time, um, but uh, nothing compared to what what came later um, after we we moved to the west. So it was still relatively speaking limited, and and uh, travel was not always possible. There were um, a number of concerts that were very very notable concerts that that really would have required him to to be present. But in actual fact, he was not given permission to travel. So th th there were certain limitations that were that were part of the Soviet Union that that didn't allow him to to travel with his music. And so when you said he wasn't necessarily always allowed to travel was that because he was already starting to I mean to say cause trouble with his music is, is, is to probably give it more more emphasis but was there were, were there times when he wasn't necessarily treading the the official kind of party line in his composition this came later on because the way it worked was that as as the 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 60s came to a close he 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 came to a a crisis point um and it culminated with him writing credo and and uh, credo was really the, the manifestation of him laying leaving the the serial technique or the 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 collage technique behind it was really kind of the the, the point where where he said no more of the previous and i have to find something new and, and this was also the seed to the start of, of a sort of conflict um, with the Soviet ideology, which over time then uh, kept growing and eventually led to us emigrating to Austria. And were you, you, were, you, you were born in, in already in, uh, in Estonia? 
Yes, yes. I was born here. Uh, so I was three years old when we moved in 1980, uh, although my first memories were already in Austria. That's helpful to frame. So, so you're, you don't really remember that time, but presumably the music had already started to evolve. Because when, when did Tintinabuli emerge? And can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So um, he, he reached that, that new language or the new, the new identity of, of his compositional voice in 1976. So since Credo until 76 was really the, the, the period of him searching for his own creative voice. Um, it all started with, with a process of reduction. He studied um, Gregorian chant. He really looked at, at um, a process of really looking to simplify the musical elements, the structures, which was really going to the opposite direction of everything that he has learned um, um, as a student. Um, and, and it was something that nobody around him did. And it's only through this process that he started to look at, at the, the, the seed, the important part within this, this sim most simplest of music. And, and on one hand, he took very simple melodic lines and started just to work on, on, un, on, on single uh, melodic um, shapes. And at the same time, um, he really took to heart texts, uh, church texts, liturgical texts, uh, Bibles and Psalms, and started base, basing these, these melodies uh, and juxtaposing it with reading these texts at the same time, and just to be together with, with, this, with this world of texts. Um, and as, as time grew, he, he really didn't know. My, my mother kept, kept thinking that, will he ever become a composer in the future? And, and if he wouldn't have gone through this breakthrough, then, then my mother says that he wouldn't have um, remained um, a composer. So this was really an existential problem that, that then did get through to a breakthrough in 76. Right. And so presumably that soul-searching journey that, that he went on, must have been a real challenge for his peers, for his musical colleagues, for the for the conservatoires, for the halls, because of the so it must have been not just to, to lose his music, but his own, you know, stepping into religion and taking that, you know, that journey must have been somewhat challenging for the Soviet authorities. Very much so. And in fact, uh, they didn't really know how to handle him because it was very passive, aggressive, so to say. Um, uh, there were a few events maybe or incidents that were maybe more active, but it's, it, essentially the music itself didn't really fit the, the ideology. Um, but for him, it was a very clear path that he had to keep searching. Uh, and he knew in 76 that he has found something because in 76, there was a, a, one can say an explosion of creative and a creative outburst, let's just say. And there were so many um, very um, uh, weighty pieces, very important pieces that up until today uh, remain in, in his repertoire list, um, really fundamentally very, very important pieces. And they, many of them really came at 76, 77, 78 during, during those first years. And, and during this, those few years, and I know in a moment we're going to hear from a little bit from Sophia and um, and Ander about the about the kind of the pieces themselves. But were they being performed in those first few years? I mean, was there a sense? Was there an initial excitement to hear the music that he'd been keeping quietly uh, from the public gaze? Well, yes. Uh, the, the first um, uh, premieres were happenings, so to say, where the where the the audience was gasping. They were wondering, "What is it that we've just heard? They've never heard anything like this." And and the effect um, for those for for the listeners was was very intense. 
but at the same time, um, the environment didn't allow for very widespread distribution of this music. So on one hand, it was very intense, but on the other hand, um, there wasn't the possibility to get this music for everybody. And, uh, and this is something that came much later. And were there reviews of his work? Although, although there weren't the opportunities to hear the music, were people talking about it? Was there a language? Was there ways yes, to learn? Yes. And there were, uh, some, some of the works were performed, so to say, underground, um, uh, not, not officially. And it's very difficult, for example, to, uh, to, to get all the uh, archive material uh, of the exact um, places and times and dates and repertoires of some of the um, concerts that were happening uh, because there, there are, this wasn't an official concert, there isn't a program about it and obviously back then it, it wasn't fixated or recorded in the same way as we might find something today. Right and pre presumably you've subsequently heard from people firsthand who were there who remember your, remember your father's concerts at that time. Right, right. And there, there are a few review, reviews that have been written up. So there is some documentation, luckily. And this is something that we very much cherish here in the centre by having all of the materials together. Uh, and, and we try to reach out to as many people as possible over, over these years to, to still find these people who might have been there or do, who have memories um, about these incidences. Fantastic. I, I'd love to hear some. I know we'd all love to hear some, some of the, his music from that period. And I heard you say... Uh, maybe it was you or Sean, um, I've lost, forgotten Sean Hafferty uh, on the Radio 3 last night just saying that Ferrolino is the prototype of Tintinabuli, the sort of the, 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 the beginning of that new journey. And so I'd love to um, hear from you both a little bit about that. I think, Sophia, you're going to tell us about Ferrolino and then Andres is going to tell us a little bit about Fratras. Yes, right. Shall I talk about Ferrolino? Because it is a solo piano piece. It's very short, it really, it encapsulates um, the Tintinabuli style. It's from 1976, Michael? Yes, so it's from the very, very beginning of that creative outpouring that Michael referred to earlier. And it, I find it absolutely fascinating piece. So you'll hear, it starts with this big bass note um, and that note is retained um, almost through the whole piece by the pedal. So you'll see my right foot doesn't move for 90% of the piece, I'd say. And so the idea is that you, this, this B chord stays, the, the B, the note, the octave, and then there are two lines on top of that. So there's, a, and this is the Tintinabuli idea. So um, there's a, a middle voice, um, from the bass, which uses triad of B minor only until the point where the pedal changes. Um, and that's the one note of the piece where this line um, comes to a C sharp. So it's a, it's a big event in the piece. <laughs> um, and then on top of that, there's a, a counter line, um, which I render um, slightly less than the main, the central line um, in, in the way that I, I voice the piece. So you'll hear the middle line more and this upper line is like a resonance that comments on it in some way. And then that leads into Fratres, which we play together. And Andres is going to talk about that. Yes, this, um, 
this version of Fratres that you are going to hear is um, not the, the original um, version. The, the very first one was uh, intended for three voices with no intended instruments to play those voices. And it's also, I believe, it's from a year later than Furalina. It's 1977. So also very close to the, the very beginning of, of the Tintinaboli style. And uh, so this, this violin and piano version was uh, written three years later for Gidon Kremer. And um, this was actually the, 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 the recording. I mean, it's a famous recording, uh, which really was, was uh, accompanying me a long way in my, in my youthhood. And, and it was that piece was also the, the real proper window for me playing Arwa Pat's music. Um, you would, in this, the fratres, as in brothers in Latin, um, the fratres, the original um, music of it is played by the piano. And um, there you have three voices. Um, and the violin part has a, I don't, I've never sort of confirmed this anyway, but it's my own feeling. It's a, a very humane voice um, on top of this fratres. It's like, it's, it has, a, it has a, um, a very dramatic nature. Um, it starts off the piece by showing the, the line with its bass note, just the violin part. That's an added, added piece of uh, material to the original fratres. The original fratres starts where, when Sophia starts to play. Uh, and um, so it's the violin has a very, I would almost say a little bit of a heroic part and a very, at the same time, a very humane part in it. Fantastic. That's beautiful to hear, to hear you describe it, both of you. And thank you very much. And I think we're ready to share the, the first part of the concert. Here's a short extract from Sophia's beautiful rendition of Ferrellina. In the last few weeks of 2020, one of my great heroes and a woman I was honoured to have met, Irena Versaite, passed away in Lithuania. I discovered that Arvo Part had written that piece of music for Irena and her daughter Alina. I was really moved to have unknowingly made that musical connection through our performance only a few weeks before she passed away, and I would love to dedicate this podcast to her memory. And now, 
Here's a short extract from Fratres. and Sophia was exquisitely beautiful. So Fratris and Furalina and all of this other music uh, and the world and the atmosphere that, that, that uh, Ivo Part was bringing to the, to, the, to, the to the kind of the then contemporary scene in Estonia, suddenly it became too much for him and it led to your own family's departure, Michael. Can you tell us a little bit about like what precipitated that move was it the Tintinaubili? Was it the religious content? What was the what, what kind of what eventually made it too much for for Arvo to, to remain in in uh, the Soviet Union? It was the content. Um, the music itself can be um, um, associated with a number of things, but there were very particular connections that that the Soviet ideology didn't see eye to eye with it. So uh, it it led to us emigrating in, in 1980. And this really marked um, a whole new stage or chapter in, in my parents' life with, with how they approached music. Because up until that point, it was very, very much of a struggle to not only get to where they got to with, with finding this compositional um, identity, but also there, there were, uh, to some extent, struggles of, of reaching the audience. Um, even in, in the wider, wider scale. So coming, arriving in the West, uh, first in Austria for one year and then um, uh, uh, to Berlin, um, quite a lot of things changed. Uh, first of all, um, Universal Edition in Vienna, uh, they opened uh, their arms and received my father into their, uh, at the publishers. So this really became the footnote or the, the kind of the groundwork for, for publishing music and, and to really have this available to musicians all around the world. Secondly, um, early on in 1984, uh, came out the first CD by ECM, um, by, by producer and ECM founder Manfred Eicher. And the ECM new series of records that goes on up until today, really defined the sound of my father's music outside the concert halls. And that again, brought the music to a very wide audience. And then thirdly, um, not to underestimate, uh, which is kind of the most important part, uh, my father was very lucky with fantastic musicians and people around him. Obviously already starting with Guidon Kremer in, in Estonia, 
um, but but um, all around the world um, with, with having his collaborations in, in the 80s and beyond. For example, the Hiller Ensemble and Paul Hiller and the Nogalius de Heer, uh, 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 you know, in, in the later years. So there, there were a number of musicians that really played a key role. So if we put all of these things together, then the symbiosis of this is how we can define the next decades that were to come. There was always music in the house, Sunday mornings and, and uh, Monday mornings and Sunday evenings and Monday evenings, you name it, there was always, there was always sound in the house. And even though um, my father had a study somewhere downstairs, it was the kitchen table that really was the busiest table mm -hmm. for him also. So um, here in the center, we have the Berlin room where he's got his furniture and he, he has a study. Um, it's the kitchen table. It's the old living room kitchen table that is here. Uh, but that is kind of the main table that he's been writing most of his pieces. To come back to the question of sort of how it was for him uh, in Germany, really, and to, to have this publishing opportunities, to have, you know, to reach audiences in a way that he hadn't been able to when he was in Estonia. What did it do to his music? Did it, did it open it out more? Did it, did it change as a result of being, being in Germany? Well, I would say that practically every piece since 76 is based on the Tintinaboli style. So the, the, that fingerprint is throughout. But what we have seen is that um, the it has become much more complex and refined. So if you take Furalina, then this is really the formula written out black and white, and it's really easy to follow. Uh, but the, those grammatical rules that Sophia was explaining a, a little while ago, uh, those can be applied with lots of kind of um, conditions. And, uh, you know, over an octave, every second note, changing inversions, whatever it is. And then you can just go to town with that. And, and, and he does that. And, and these, these later uh, uh, compositions, they have the same rules, the same ideas, but, but they, they become more and more hidden or they become just more and more complex. But essentially the base has been established and it has never changed since. That's really helpful to hear. And, and to do, I guess, looking, looking back for your own personal experience and then refracting that through, through, through um, your father's music, do you feel that, that there were elements of, elements of his music which shifted from being, from sort of moving from east to west, moving across the, Iron Curtain embracing, obviously there's a big part of his music, as you said, the Gregorian chants, there was obviously orthodox music was a big part of his, of his you know, the, the world that he drew on and inspired him. Were there other elements in, in, in kind of Western Europe, which also, which also kind of were able to feed his creativity? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. In fact, there are many elements that, that connect to the, the idea of East and West. Starting at the beginning, um, when he was looking at, at a compositional voice, he was studying and he was looking at Gregorian chant, which is Western church music. But at the same time, the texts that he was reading himself um, uh, were uh, Russian Orthodox or Greek Orthodox, Orthodox texts. So that's Eastern um, um, uh, Christian uh, texts. So this East and West already started at the very beginning, before, before the compositional voice even flourished. Um, and later on, when we look at the repertoire and how the repertoire is performed, not only where, when it comes to languages, but also where it's performed and for who and who does it, uh, who performs it, then we can see that there is actually no distinction between confessions and, and geography. And 
And this is really a key point, which really goes to the very widely understood idea that music is kind of an international language, but this really speaks to people. And it maybe comes down to the connection of, of the, the closeness to how it is connected to the word, which brings us back to the choice of language. Um, my father has used um, many languages in, in his compositions, and usually there is particular reason why a composition is written to a particular language. We're talking about choral music in particular right now. Uh, and the use of language and, and the, the sound, the tone of a language has a great influence of, of the shape of it. So even though the context contents is the same, two different languages of the same text would, would result in different compositions. And so he saw himself as a, as a musician of the world and you know, he was inspired by so much. Well, I, I don't know. Um, at the end of the day, it's the word that starts the impulse and, and then through certain processes of, of limiting and reduction, there comes some kind of a seed of what brings um, along a, a, a compositional start. Um, and mm -hmm. it all comes, starts with, with the choice of texts, the rhythm of the text, the meaning of it, uh, what it says, and, and from there, the com composition starts formulating. But something drew him back to Estonia because he, you moved back as a family. And are you able to tell us a little bit about that journey back, the establishment of the re-establishment of the, the kind of the home in, in, uh, in, in Laulosman? Well, I would say that um, since the 90s, when Estonia regained its um, independence again, that doors opened uh, and, and my parents started to come here first seldomly, but then more often and more often, up until the point where they had a place to stay but the final move was um, uh, 10 years ago. And by that time, we already started looking at how to bring all of the materials, which were at that time still in Berlin, uh, here. Just a little footnote about those materials. As a Soviet composer, you were an employee of the state. So it's really the Ministry of Culture that approved commissions and commissioned the composer. So the composer was re never really in charge of one's own materials even the original manuscript didn't belong to the composer. It belonged to the, to, the, to, to the Ministry of Culture, to the government, to the Soviet Union. Um, in the West, he was a freelancer. So that's when they started accumulating materials. So when we look at our archive and the majority of the materials that we have here in Laulasma, uh, are actual materials that, that my parents have been collecting since we moved to the West. Uh, so there, is, there are tons and tons of materials that we have here. So it would be probably correct to say that with, with all of these things, my mother was really the first archivist because she really kept an eye on everything and, and, and organizing things and structuring things, uh, but only to a certain capacity of what was possible at home. So when we came here, we wanted to bring some kind of a different level to the accessibility of this archive. First to, to, to organize it, um, and then first ideas started to appear of creating the center. So this, this was the next chapter. And you yourself um, are a musician and a composer. And, and how would you say how you're growing up in this house of song and this house of music? How would you say that, you know, has it affected you and your own journey as an artist? Well, I'm a, not a musician and not a composer. I've studied composition. <laughs> I'm a music producer. I work mainly on films, uh, but obviously my, my, my main focus is, is here at the Auto um, Center. How, how can I answer this? Uh, music being always around me, um, I think played a key role in having, wanting to develop an ear for music. 
um, and having an interest for it. And, and this is really the, the, the main connection. It you know, comes from here and, and wanting to, to have a connection. I, I, I want to um, invite uh, Sophia to, and, and just to give us a little bit more music at this point. Uh, Sophia, um, would you like to tell us a little bit about Spiegel and Spiegel, which I think is the first piece we're going to hear next? We are going to hear Spiegel and Spiegel on its own. This is another of the Tintinabuli pieces. This is from 78, I think. And this is an extraordinary piece, I find, because its construction is brilliant. Once you start looking into how it's made, it's absolutely extraordinary. And I, Anders will confirm this, that the other, other weekend I was just sitting, looking at the sea and the pine forest, and I had my score of Spiegel and Spiegel, and I started to sort of analyse exactly what was happening, when, when certain bass notes would come, when certain high notes would come, and how the violin moves from an access note, which is A, it moves maybe one step upwards and back to the A, one step below, back to the A, two steps. And he's building, building, building these massive phrases. And I started to sketch out just a few details of what was going on. And I found that my piece of paper was inadequate. <laughs> so then I started to do a new chart just to see how it was constructed. Um, when you listen to it, it's an entirely different experience. The construction is very precise and ingenious, absolutely ingenious. But um, the effect of it is that anybody can access this music, anybody can listen to it. And we had this experience, we took this piece on tour. Um, it was part of a recital of Nordic pieces. So we had a, a piece from every sort of Nordic country, I think, didn't we? We had a Greek piece, we had um, Toraulin from Sweden. Um, we had, you know, all the Nordic sort of countries were represented and we had Spiegel in Spiegel was the piece that we had um, from Arvo. And after this, every recital, we took it to Scotland and we played it also in, around Denmark in a few concerts. And after every single concert without fail, having had this kind of smorgasbord of repertoire, the one piece that everybody wanted to talk to us about was this Spiegel and Spiegel. And everybody had a story about what it meant to them. Um, so some people said this reminded me of when I was by the hospital bed of my father, or this reminded me of this, or this speaks to me in this way. It, everybody had a very particular meaning that it signified to them. And I thought it's really fascinating that you can have something that's so constructed in such a, a beautiful, perfect way, and yet it can tap into very, very deep emotions and appeal to a very, very broad section of the listening public. You know, it's, it's a remarkable thing, I think. Um, it's, I have to say, it's incredibly simple when you hear it, and it's incredibly difficult to play because of that, don't you think? <laughs> so forgive us <laughs> what's about to happen. <laughs> it's very hard because there's, it's so spare. There's nothing there, really. And so there's nothing to get your teeth into, and 
you just have these endless expanses. I've played it in various versions. I've played it a lot with Andres, um, but I have also once played it with um, a marvellous bassoon player, um, which was an absolute feat of breath control. And it, I was amazed because the phrases, they go to kind of 22 bars, you know, so it was quite something. <laughs> Yarek Augustiniak, well done. <laughs> oh, Sphere, thank you for that beautiful introduction. Let's hear it. Thank you both so much for such an extraordinary, beautiful uh, rendition of that piece. It, it's extremely moving. It was just an amazing atmosphere that the piece gave off and it sounded gorgeous. Thank you very much. And so and the other writers continued to, to compose. Right now he's still composing and we're really privileged to, to be able to, to uh, feature a lullaby that he only wrote at the end of last year. And, and I think, Andres, is going to, are you able to, to introduce it for us? Sure. Um, I will correct you a little bit there. This lullaby... Oh, please do. Uh, this, this lullaby is actually written in 2002. Um, and it's <laughs> two female voices and piano. But um, as Arvopart many times over the years have, has done is to, to arrange his pieces for different instruments. So... Uh, the version for violin and piano is really um, a new one um, written last year and dedicated to American violinist Anna Kiko Myers. And um, as many of his pieces, they uh, often are still in the pro, even if we hear them uh, in concert or we even might see them in print, they might still come up in a somewhat different shape in a couple of years or, or so. So um, he's still often working on the, on the material that he has published. Um, and this Estonian lullaby is, um, I would, I would um, say that this is probably not a Tintinopoli piece as, uh, as you have heard so, so far. It's a very sweet Estonian lullaby. Um, the text in the uh, actual lullaby is called, um, it goes, uh, which means hush, hush, little darling in Estonian. And when you hear the violin beginning, then that's the and um, yeah, so hope, hope you enjoy that little lullaby. Thank you. 
Thank you both very much. After Andres finished playing Lullaby, we brought in some questions from our digital audience. Here's one from Georgina Coburn. Arvo Park's music feels like a bridge between heaven and earth. How do you perceive the sacred in his work? Do you, do you Sophia, do you, do you fancy responding on that first? I think there's something to do with time that speaks somewhere in this area. It, I'm thinking also of uh, the Spiegel in Spiegel, obviously, which it seems to me that we just, we eavesdrop on a section of it, but it's going on before the piece, you actually hear the first notes and it's carrying on after you, you hear the, the last notes dying away. It's, there's something eternal about that, that piece and other pieces, I'd say the, the, the last movement of the tabula rasa is another case in point where he ends on the low E in the double bass, I think, is that right? And um, it, it, maybe I've got the note wrong, but he, he implies that it's not finished, I think, in that. So there, there's something about what he's doing with time that speaks somehow to the, the universal and the human and the, the dynamic between those two things. And that's what, that's what my chart is all about, <laughs> in a way. It's, yeah. it's that this, this note comes at this time and then at this time, and it's part of some larger pattern. This pattern are those words that I mentioned before, and the music is soaked in not only those words, but what's behind those words, the meaning of those words. So if you really want to live by those word, words, then that has a um, effect. So the cause and effect really plays a very important part. Uh, so what the listener hears is some element of this. Um, and having space, having time, and having this emptiness uh, doesn't overwhelm the listener with something that is given. The given is actually the, 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 the listener's ability to to be, if, if one is open enough to take it in, then actually it's the listener who is open. Thank you. Anders, do you, do you want to respond to this idea of the sacred, the bridge between heaven and earth? I think it's a very, it's, it's whatever is sacred for anyone is sacred for them in, in a very personal way. And I'm, I think that his music is very much when listening to it, when playing it as well. I think if we tap into ourselves, the most vulnerable of ourselves and sincere part of ourselves, then that is really, that's where it, it kind of, it, it is and it, it belongs. Michael, at what point did the idea of creating a centre for the archive emerge? And it's such an exquisite building that we haven't had the opportunity to hear about. But my understanding is that really the music is, from having spoken to you previously, music is really at the heart of the architecture of the building. Uh, it, it started uh, quite a number of years ago. Uh, as I said, we just brought the archive here to Estonia and we were very busy doing our work on the archive and looking at how we can um, bring my father's input to the archive of deciphering some of the 
um, content and the documents that we have together with him, something that we can only do today. The then president of Estonia, Thomas Hendrik Ilves, said, you must have a center, a place where the public can come. Um, my parents actually, they had an impulse against this. They, they were looking at it from the point of view that they really wanted to focus to continue to work on archive materials as opposed to starting to, to have a process of planning and construction and having lots of noise around their lives. Luckily, it, it was, it, they didn't get their way. Luckily, that, uh, that the, the, the president's idea really worked out. Also, it, the political will was established, the finances were established, and, and thanks to, to, the, to, the, to the government of Estonia, it was actually financed completely, the, the building part. So without, without that premise, it would have been completely impossible. So given that the actual process was really um, swift, the planning and the construction, and we have wonderful architects, Nieto Sobejano, Enrique Sobejano, Fuenzante Nieto and Enrique Sobejano. And with, with those architects, they had um, a wonderful view on, on this building. It was based on the tabula, um, tabula rasa and some elements and structures of this composition, they have brought into, into the rhythm of the building. Um, the building is something that, that they wanted to kind of flow into the forest and to be one with the forest, to have courtyards in for the lights to enter into the center of the building. And the idea of the building is really to, to bring the listener and the music together in, in whatever layer the, the visitor is, is capable of. Uh, we are out of town, it takes 45, minute, 45 minutes to get from, from Tallinn to Laulasmar. And then by the time you get out to, to walk into the building, which is another five to ten, five minutes walk, um, a certain base has been established. Uh, your temper has been reduced. You're ready maybe to take something in. So for every visitor at their level, whatever they would like to take, take in, we want to offer something for everybody, from, from children to everyday listeners, to particular fans, to scholars, to everybody alike. So this is something that we want to establish and nurture for the future. Michael, how, how active is Arvo in the, in the kind of the day-to-day -day life of the centre? I mean, does he just, does really just happen to walk in during a concert? Does he kind of, does he, does he use the library? When, when my parents said that they don't want the centre, what they were afraid of is that this whole planning and building would take such a long time that it would cut off the kind of everyday process of everyday life, of composing, being in touch with the team, working with the center staff. However, because the whole thing happened so quickly, uh, and at the same time, all, the, all my, my, my father's furniture and his, his piano, it was kind of stored away from, from his study in Berlin. Uh, once everything was set up here, he embraced it from day one. Uh, he's coming to work at the center practically every day. And he, he has his little study and he composes. And he, he works feverishly and, and tirelessly just on, on materials all the time, um, a little bit in the morning, a little bit in the afternoon, but it really works for him um, to be so close to the people that, that work on his material, to have access to all the material, to reference materials if he has any questions. Anybody can find everything that is required. So the, the, whole, the whole system really works in the today. 
So mm -hmm. this is something that is very important to us because normally archives are something that is a very complete endeavor. An archive is usually started when the material is, when the collection is complete, and then one starts the, 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 the process of, of um, systemizing. Whereas in our case, every day we, we add new materials. And in addition to that, the author can come and rip a piece out from an original and say, no, 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 I don't want that page anymore. So you can only imagine how, how the archivist, um, uh, I mean, the archivist is just pulling out her hair. She's thinking, but, but, but the original, um, but the author can do whatever the author wants to do. So these are very bizarre circumstances, of course, of course, my father doesn't go around the archive ripping out pages, but the idea is he does come with a, with a pencil and he starts scribbling. And effectively, it's the same thing. What happens? What is the new original? Is that the real thing? What happened to the old original? So this is a very unusual circumstance, but all in all, it really works. And the team is really fantastic. Uh, and this is really what really makes the whole thing so, so, so smooth with, with, when it comes to working with, with my father and the material and our activities. You had a wonderful um, experience the other week of revisiting that the Estonian lullaby with Arvo. I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I described it wrong initially by, by, by saying that it was a recent piece. Of course, it wasn't a recent piece, but it was recently reworked. But I know, that you, I know that you went over it with him before it was recorded last week. Can you tell us a little bit about how it was for you? How does he articulate what he kind of wants from you, you know, in his own language? It was a wonderful experience. I think it, at any point when you are working together in a creative situation, which this was as well, uh, and it also at the same time, it's, you know, it's reworking around something, trying to capture something from what was there before and also trying to adapt it to the, to the, to the instrument now in hand, um, so the violin. It was it was experimental. Um, we we try we try out different ideas. How does this sentence here sound up here or in this type of um, articulation? And so um, it was. It's kind of it. it I would say um, almost. Not it, it's not a romantic uh, situation. It's a little bit more like a you know a little bit work uh, study. We we find we are we're cooking in the kitchen. You know this spice maybe this one. You know it's it's kind of touch and go and 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 it really eventually what it comes down to and what I um, experience a lot with with working with Arvopart is that it, a lot of information is, or a lot of the decisions are eventually made upon how it sounds. And so the inner sound, inner ear that, that, that takes up what was just done in the, uh, what I play, then if, yes, let's go with that. No, that's not, that's it. You know, this, it's kind of fine tuning situation and 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 so it was you know it, it was very fun because we're basically just you know we're creating something together that's beautifully put um there's a little bit of conversation happening in the chat about um from two singers who say that they've both sung over the years and they've they've, they've rarely sung any arvo part um and they were wondering if that's because there is just less the repertoire is small compared to the you know the world of choral music, 
or whether that's because it seemed to be difficult or unusual. Do you, do you have any thoughts to share, Michael, on, on, as a reflection on, on this, that conversation thing happening slightly to my right? Well, I think that I would like to um, add to what um, Sophia was talking about when it comes to how difficult it is to play because you are completely naked. You have no ensemble to hide, hide behind. And even as an ensemble, you think, ah, I've got an ensemble to hide behind. <laughs> no, 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 no. And you, you are, everybody's a soloist. Um, and for example, with, with Firalina, um, countless world-class um, pianists, they've looked at this piece of paper, ah, I've got that, that's in the bag. You look at, you know, a couple of notes there, you know, got that. And then they start and then they really struggle. They really struggle. And there is no rationale on what, why it doesn't click or if there is a mistake. It, you can't really measure it that way. And at the same time, sometimes um, my father works with, with young musicians and sometimes they just get it. And there are these worlds apart um, and it's a complete um, contradiction. So it's a very complicated picture. Um, tuning is absolutely uh, a, a very, it's, it's a huge um, challenge because of the way the harmony is built up, the way the voice leading is built up. For example, the way that dynamics are managed is not by writing in a dynamic. Don't take me wrong, there are plenty of dynamic markings, but from a compositional level, dynamics are very often built in at, at a writing stage. So that if you, for example, have a louder section, suddenly the voice, the voice is divided. And if you, if, you, if you sing something quieter, then you realize actually you only have one or two voices singing and all the divisions and, and the other, the other um, sections actually not singing. So there's, there's a very natural uh, way of, of structuring this piece. But that only increases this, this level of, of each singer being exposed. So it's notoriously hard. Mm. So, um, I, I, again, I, I haven't been performing his music, but um, this is how, how I can see it from, from, from a side. Mm. Right. It's absolutely That's true. I mean, yeah. it's often, often part in, from that point of view is, uh, is compared to Mozart in, uh, from the sense of, how easy it sounds, how uh, how simple, and that's exactly the where the where the difficulties lie. There are no cheap notes. Yeah. In this music, he's reduced and reduced and reduced to the absolute essential notes, and that creates a sort of a desire on our part to to honour that in as simple and pure terms as possible. But that creates a huge challenge, actually, because, you know, it's like, it's, okay, it's similar to Mozart. Maybe it's the opposite of Mendelssohn. I love Mendelssohn, mm. but Mendelssohn has many, many flurries of fantastically cheap notes, actually. You could do without two or three and not really feel it very much. But if you miss one of Arvo's, then it, you ruin the piece, actually. Mm. Yeah, he, uh, my father jokes in saying that he doesn't have a wrong note, and he means that in this particular context, <laughs> and that every note is there for a reason, and the notes that aren't required never make it to the to the stage. 
So that's kind of the that's approach it. of it. Yeah, mm. exactly. Was the music played, was his music played in the Soviet Union after he left? Do you, do you have any idea? I think so. I don't think, I'm, I'm, I couldn't tell you for sure, but I believe that his music did not see the scrutiny and that my father's music saw. I mean, the extent- Oh no, I meant your, sorry, I meant your father's music. I mean, it was your, after he left, um, was there, you know, in 1980, was that, you know, during Perestroika, do you have stories about his music being replayed? Uh, I mean, what happened was that, for example, uh, prior to, to him writing serial music, he was writing music for films and also during the 60s and a little bit later, uh, many of those films had his name scratched out on the negatives, on, on the film roles, because he was, a, he was a persona non grata after we left Estonia, because he was not to be credited as a composer. Was it easy to leave? When one is suggested to leave, uh, then one doesn't ask any questions and one leaves. Mm. Um, because they can all, they could always be the silent or else, which there wasn't. Uh, but we, we have all heard all kinds of stories, how people disappear in bright day, broad daylight. So I think that there was this understanding that my parents understood what was going on and that, you know, this was just before the borders really closed for a longer period of time. In January 80, uh, after, uh, at the same time when, when we left, uh, the, the, uh, the Yarri family left. Um, and uh, Neme Yarri with his family also left, I think about a week or 10 days later. Uh, and after that, the borders shut, they were closed and there was no more movement back and forth. You have a, a favorite piece of music by him. Do you each have one? And if so, why? Mine is Tadeum, his uh, orchestra choir piece, which um, I've known for a long time. And I, and I, I think it has, it has some of the absolutely world's best music in it. And, uh, and just, just the beginning always goes under my skin, which is a it's a very low note on a on a. It's a called wind half. Wind half. Uh, and it was back in the days in nineties. It was played in a synthesizer low note, and it fills the church. And it's it's um, that's that's my favorite piece. I would say that the most uh, profound experiences were on large pieces that I've been listening to. For example, Kanon Bakayanen or Adam's Lament, where the text is actually very strong, if I can say that. And those performances that have had that text projected live during the performance of the singing and the playing. And it gives a completely new dimension of, of hearing the text, not by just reading it, but hearing it in the music and in, in the texture of the music. And this, these kind of performances don't happen very often, um, but um, I've, I've really had, had the luck to really be there in some of them. And it is somehow, it adds a, something very special to it. Um, so this is something that we also want to, to cultivate here in Laurasma, where we want to study these pieces and have our musicologists work on these pieces 
and then also do these listening sessions in the hall. We have a hall right here behind this very wall, um, uh, that the same hall where, where, where Anders and Sofia were playing today, um, and, and play some of these pieces to the audience. You know, maybe a large piece can't be played live, but the real point is to, to get these different connections to the compositions. So this is really what, what moves me the most. <laughs> oh, I can't choose between, I love Spiegel and Spiegel, I love Forelina, I love Ratres. Um Tabula Rasa is an extraordinary piece that we didn't really talk about very much. And I particularly love this because I played this on a tour with the Scottish Ensemble, marvellous, marvellous instrumentalists and very good friends. And it's always a pleasure to play with them en masse and individually. Uh, this was just a very special, because we made a programme that was with a, it was a, with a theatre company um, called Vanishing Point in Edinburgh, Matthew Linton as a director. And um, so we had two actors on stage. Um, we played Arvo's pieces complete. I started with Foralina and then there would be some um, drama, some dialogue, and then there would be Fratres complete, more dialogue um, or monologue, and then Spiegel and Spiegel. And then we'd finish, the thing would finish with Tabula Rasa and um, the actress who was the main person in this drama, she she would come to the front of the stage to talk just before we played the first movement of Tabula Rasa. And then she would turn for the music, she would turn so her back was to the audience during the whole duration of that first movement. And every night, we did it on a tour for 10 nights or something, every night, she would turn back to the audience after the first movement and she was weeping, just genuine tears. But she was so moved every single time by the, this incredible music. It was amazing. I'll never forget her face <laughs> as she turned every time. It was amazing. to our Dash Digital Café on Arvo Part with my wonderful guests Sophia Rahman, Andres Cayeste and Michael Part. It was recorded in London and Laulasman at the Arvo Part Centre with support from the Estonian Embassy, Dash Arts and the Centre itself. The team behind the Dash Arts podcast is me, Josephine Burton, Christina Catalina and Natalie Beach. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcast or by going to the podcast section on our website dasharts.org.uk. And if you like the Dash Arts podcast, follow the show, share and please leave us a review. It helps us stay visible and would mean the world to us. I'm Josephine Burton, back soon with more conversations at the Dash Arts podcast. Thank you for listening.